Unless you're extremely familiar with Exeter, California, you'll find it useful to follow along on the interactive map on our website, 122675.com. This episode covers a lot of time, distance, and location issues. We've let the prosecution's case speak for itself. All of the evidence testimony you've heard came directly from the prosecution witnesses, not experts hired by the defense. You've already heard from most of the defense witnesses since they focused on Oscar's clothing, alibi, and the time he arrived home on December 26th. The defense didn't need battling experts because the state didn't find any forensics that could be matched to Oscar. The two areas Donahue should have had either expert testimony or better cross-examination was on the hair on Oscar's white sweater and the supposed seminal fluid. Donahue either should have had his person do ABO testing on the hair or ask Morton on cross if he had done it and what the results were. Donahue should have objected to Blake as an expert witness. He was a graduate student at the time, and he should have challenged the testing method he used as unproven in the scientific community to show seminal fluid. Somehow, Donahue also completely failed to point out that even if there were seminal fluid, it was not Oscar's. It couldn't have been because it did not contain sperm or Oscar's blood type O. If it actually existed, it belonged to someone who was type A or a non-secretor, and that man was sterile. The rest of the defense case just needed to clear up confusion and point out what was impossible about the state's case. The invoice book is extremely troubling, but it's a collection of paper. It did not kidnap or kill Donna, and there was no evidence at trial that showed who left it in the grove or when it was placed there. It appeared that the invoice book, notepad, and several nearby bottles and cans had all been wiped. Where were the fingerprints that should have been on the outside of these items? Why weren't David Richmond's prints found on the invoice book and notepad if they were next to the bike and he examined them as he claimed? Something is off about these items, especially since Oscar was adamant that the notepad was not his. The handwriting in it did not match Oscar's, and the figures were unrelated to his life and business. TCSO's original theory was that Donna had grabbed the invoice book and notepad and thrown them out of the truck, but her fingerprints were not found on either object. Every time we get stuck on the invoice book, we go back to the alibi and physical evidence, and they remind us that Oscar could not have placed the book there at 4.15 p.m. on the 26th. So let's go back and look at the timeline, something that Donahue should have done at trial. The first time we read the trial transcript, we were dumbfounded. Donahue did not make an opening statement at the introduction of the trial. If ever there was a case that would have benefited from an opening statement from the defense, this was it. Oscar had an extremely complicated but compelling alibi with multiple disinterested witnesses, and Donahue didn't tell the jury about it. Two timelines on poster board showing Oscar's day and Donna's day side by side would have proven to the jury that Oscar could not have been in two places at once. Donahue also failed to realize that Bill Rose's 2.30 to 3 p.m. visit to Garden Street could actually be used to help prove Oscar's innocence. Since Rose said he did not see the freezer loading, it either had to be over before 2.30 or not begin until after Rose left at 3. Irwin's wife checked into the hospital at 2 o'clock in Tulare, and then he drove up to Visalia and picked up the Kelly freezer. The freezer guys could not have made it to Garden Street before 2.30. Mr. Thomas was correct. The guys arrived to load the freezer and bikes at his house around 3.15 p.m. This is the trial testimony of Iverna Irwin from July 8, 1976. She's the wife of the freezer loading guy and was dropped at the hospital that day. This is defense attorney Donahue questioning Mrs. Irwin on cross. Mrs. Irwin, you left the hospital around 3.10, is that correct? No, I waited for my husband to come after me. What time was that when he came? Well, it was about a quarter after four. But see, I didn't get to see him because they told him that I was gone. He picked you up about 4.15? I was at the hospital at 4.15, but I had to walk home because they had told him I was gone already. And what time did you leave the hospital then, ma'am? About 4.30. And you never saw your husband when he arrived at 4.15? No. So Mrs. Irwin was discharged from the hospital at 310, but there was no one there to pick her up. 
Apparently, her husband came at 4.15. The hospital told him that she was already gone because she checked out an hour earlier, and he went home without her. So the really interesting part of that is that at 4.15, he was just getting back to the hospital. That lines up perfectly with the idea that he left Thomas and the freezer loading at 3.45. Gene Owens' statement was very precise. Oscar drove by his house at 2.55. The drive back to Garden Street is about 20 minutes. That places Oscar getting out of his truck to hear the freezer guy arrival comment from Thomas at 3.15, exactly when Thomas estimated. Also, if Oscar was at Owens's at 2.55, he could not have been in Woodlake propositioning Beth Brumley. In addition to the strength of Oscar's alibi, the state's timeline is impossible. Donna's bike ride from Don Lee's down to List was timed at 25 minutes by TCSO, so Donna would have arrived at the bike scene around 4.10 p.m. Presumably, she was kidnapped at that time. The Mosgaros and other Grove workers saw nothing, despite being on the lookout for the supposed flasher. Then, Donna would have been driven 3.3 miles north to the Neal Ranch. The killer spent some time killing her and hiding her body, then drove around dropping her clothing. Let's be generous and say that they arrived at Neal Ranch at 4.20, and the killer was gone by 4.30. The shortest drive route to the underwear on Road 176 is 6.8 miles. Let's say he arrived there at 4.40, another four miles to Oscar's house, so now we're right around the 4.45 p.m. time TCSO pressured Carter to say Oscar arrived home. There are a few things that could go wrong here. Don Lee could have been off by 5 or 10 minutes. At one point, he said Donna left his house closer to 4 p.m., not 3.45. The 25-minute 4.3 test bike ride to List was done by Bird's son, Jerry. It's possible that Donna, in her platform sandals, would have taken longer. Additionally, the 20 minutes allowed for Donna to be kidnapped, driven to Neal Ranch, murdered, and hidden seems like an impossible minimum. Fifteen minutes to drive back to Oscar's house would have been a frantic pace. These events all likely took longer than the timeline allowed. But, most of all, the state's timeline depended on Carter's revised testimony regarding the time Oscar was seen at home. Carter's original tape statement was taken at 3 a.m. on the 27th, right after he was arrested, and he was clear. This is a taped statement taken December 27, 1975, at 0327 hours, from Richard Allen Carter. The TCSO officers present are Detective Chamberlain and Detective McKinney. Detective Chamberlain is doing the questioning. As you recall, about what time uh, that you got back to Oscars? About four. Who was there when you arrived at Oscars? The two girls. Uh, neither Oscar nor his wife were at home then either? No. Were they uh, any of the vehicles at home? Yes, the car. Do you know what kind of car that is? No. It's his regular car? His own car? Yes. Okay. Did anyone come home after you got there? Yeah, Oscar did. Do you remember about what time that was? About 4.15. What was he driving when he came home? White Ford pickup. Do you know whose pickup that is? His. Is that the same white Ford pickup that was sitting there next to his garage when we were out there about 2 o'clock this morning? Yeah. Okay, now the black Ford pickup that was sitting by it, uh, is that your pickup? Yes. Okay, and there was a vehicle in the driveway in front of the garage. Is uh, It had white top, I believe red or brown colored bottom. Is that their vehicle? Yeah. Okay, when Oscar arrived home, uh, did there come a time when he left somewhere else? Yeah, down to the Avery's. Uh, did you notice anything about him peculiar, say, uh, his attitude or personality? A little different than usual. What I mean by that is, uh, did he seem nervous or upset or worried or sad or glad or anything out of the usual? No. Uh, how long was he gone to Avery's? I don't know. When he came back, uh, who came back with him? Avery, Glenda, Glenda's boy... Oscar and Alice and Oscar's boy. Okay, how long after they came back to the residence were they there? About five minutes, ten. Did they all leave? Yeah. 
Did this include all the kids too? No. Who stayed at the residence? Me, the two girls, and the two boys. Did Oscar say anything to you uh, about what he'd been doing during the day or anything at all? No. Do you have any idea where he might have been working or where he might have been during the daytime? Uh, Bill Rose's or Bill Jordan's. Did he tell you this was where he was going to go or did he have to work there that he needed to do or do you know? I think he was going to go talk to one of them. Okay, thank you. This interview will be concluded. Time, 0340 hours. Oscar arrived home at 4.15. Don Lee was interviewed at 7.30 a.m. and placed the last time he saw Donna at 3.45. TCSO could see right there Donna could not have reached the supposed kidnap site off-list before 4.10. So, if Oscar arrived home at 4.15, he couldn't have killed Donna. Period. At 5.45 p.m. that night, Saturday the 27th, Holguin and King obtained another tape statement from Carter. When asked what time Clifton arrived home, Carter said, quote, 4.15, I mean 4.45. We've been told flat out that Carter was told he would be charged with Donna's murder if he did not change the time to 4.45. They couldn't push it later than that because Oscar's daughters were also there and saw Oscar make phone calls and switch vehicles before he headed to the doulas. Even if you believe it was actually 4.45, that would leave exactly zero minutes for any type of cleanup of Oscar and or his truck. The alibi makes the state's timeline moot, but it is important also to point out that Oscar could not have kidnapped Donna and been home at 4.15 or at 4.45. Frank Thomas was a dream witness. His statements to Petty John and Bird were consistent and solid. He clearly told Bird that Petty John had known the arrival comment ahead of the interview and never wavered on the time of the freezer loading. Powell was able to neutralize Oscar's alibi by alternating his theory for each witness. Sometimes he argued that Oscar was never there for the freezer loading, and Petty John fed the details to Oscar. For other witnesses, Powell implied that the freezer loading was over before 2.30, so Oscar didn't have an alibi between 3 and 4. However, most damning of all were Powell's statements that Oscar was clearly lying, because there were no witnesses who saw him at Garden Street between 3 and 4 p.m. that day. The fact that Powell was aware of Gerber and Trueblood is unforgivable. Oscar missed Rose at Garden Street because he was trying to fix his niece's dryer. Gene Owen saw him there and placed the time between 2.45 and 2.55. The freezer loading was, in fact, between 3.15 and 3.45. Oscar saw and heard it all and Trueblood and Gerber were eyewitnesses who placed Oscar there. The jury never got a chance to hear what really happened and were left with an unexplained, muddled mess of confusion. Looking at the dates of the TCSO reports, they were so certain of Oscar's guilt when they arrived at the bike scene, they never bothered to investigate his alibi before the trial got started. It wasn't until late spring that all of the forensic results really started to take shape, and all they had was a leaf, tire and heel prints that could not be matched to Oscar, Brumley and Moscoro, whose suspect descriptions don't even match each other, let alone Oscar and his truck, a tiny pocket knife with no sign of blood, fibers, hair, or skin, supposed seminal fluid that was inexplicably missing spermatozoa and Oscar's blood type, and the invoice book that appeared to have been wiped of fingerprints. That's it. That's everything they had. There is no question that Trueblood and Gerber were intentionally suppressed. Morton lied about the hair on Oscar's sweater possibly being Donna's. Blood typing had excluded her. Powell knew that Oscar had not worn the painter's pants and disposed of them. They were sitting in the evidence room, free of dirt and blood. Powell also lied to the jury when he accused Oscar of learning about the freezer loading from Pettyjohn and saying that nobody saw Oscar during that time he was well aware that those statements were 100% false. This behavior was shameful prosecutorial misconduct. We've come to believe that TCSO really thought that Oscar was guilty and focused all of their energy on shaping the evidence to support that theory. Obviously, that wasn't an actual criminal investigation. 
Anything that didn't point to Oscar was either ignored or hidden. Multiple witnesses were encouraged to shape their descriptions, time estimates, and details of events to match Oscar, his truck, and his supposed window of availability. A section of Bird's testimony at trial regarding why he felt justified violating Oscar's Miranda rights was really illuminating. I begged Mr. Clifton to tell me where the girl was. You begged him? Yes, sir. Why did you want to know where the girl was? She was a personal friend. I've known her ever since she was a baby, and I've trying to find her before. It was cold. I thought maybe she was stashed someplace, and she might still be alive. It's impossible not to feel for Bird in that moment, and it says a lot about what he was thinking that night. He would not have focused on Oscar unless he really believed Oscar took Donna. Nobody could blame him for looking at Oscar first. The invoice book needed to be explained, and it was the only tangible clue they had. Unfortunately, Bird developed an immediate and laser-focused case of tunnel vision, and he was directing the actions of all of the other investigating officers. It seems like they had a really good opportunity to reevaluate the case against Oscar the next day. Seeing the invoice book neatly placed next to Donna's bike and the trail of her clothes leading to Oscar's house actually could have been a huge red flag. A neat trail leading them away from town might have made them turn and go back the other way, but it didn't. The most noticeable thing about the clothing trail, when you look at the map, is that it looks a lot like it was left by someone going to Exeter, not towards Oscar's house or Vesalia. Other than the pants, the items are all far off the road. The panties were discovered by officers driving on a ranch access siding road along the ditch, and that's exactly what it looks like the killer did. This is the kind of detail TCSO might have followed up on if they weren't just trying to prove that Oscar threw them out on his way home. The lack of logic here is staggering. Somehow, the invoice book, wiped of prints, fell out of Oscar's truck as he was kidnapping Donna and landed down the embankment right next to her bike. If there was a struggle putting Donna in the truck, why wouldn't the book have landed at Oscar's feet where he would have immediately noticed it? Why wouldn't Oscar just attack Donna in a nearby grove? Why would he take her all the way to Neil Ranch? He had no connection to it or knowledge of its schedule. Why would he drag Donna under a tree to hide her, but then leave an obvious trail of evidence leading right to his doorstep? Why would he even take Donna's clothes with him? Why not leave them in the grove or throw them in the canal to drift downstream? How did the panties and belt travel 25 feet, thrown from a moving vehicle, and land together? There are two things that really bother us about the bike scene being the site of Donna's kidnapping around 4.10 that afternoon. The first is the fact that it was the height of orange picking season. That's why the groves were full of workers the day after Christmas, and the next day, a Saturday. Why didn't anyone else report the Moscoro flasher lurking or driving around? Why didn't anyone see the man or his vehicle waiting down on the grove road, or hear any screams? There were people working all around the area that day. The second problem is related. Why didn't anyone see Donna's bike between 4.10 and sundown at 5? People were still working then, and a lot of workers' vehicles would have been parked on that same grove road. Didn't anyone see the bike on their way home? Fifty minutes at the busy end of the workday seems like a long time for the bike to go unnoticed. If there had been a struggle, and the invoice book was knocked off the dash of Oscar's truck by Donna, why isn't there any evidence of Donna in the truck? The interior of Oscar's truck was dusted for prints, and none of them were Donna's. They found one possible hair, but on microscopic examination and ABO testing, it proved to be Oscar's daughters, not Donna. Oscar had no injuries or cuts, no signs of fighting with or stabbing anyone. Oscar's fingernail scrapings contained no blood, skin, hair, dirt, or fibers associated with Donna or the scenes. If you look at the photos from the truck's interior on a website, you'll see the white painter's pants on the floor of the passenger side. There was no evidence of footprints or dirt on those pants. Where would Donna have put her feet? There was no blood or mud, and testing of the floor sweepings did not match either the bike or Neil Ranch scene. The same was true for the mud on the outside of the truck. The lack of physical evidence is overwhelming. Oscar's fingerprints were not found on Donna's shoes, 
and none of the hairs or fibers found on Donna's body matched Oscar, his truck, or anything in his house. There was no evidence of Oscar's O blood type found on Donna or anything associated with her or the scenes. Some of the items seized from Oscar's house on the 27th and later tested include Evidence item number seven, one pair blue pants. Number eight, one pink tan checked shirt. Number nine, one tan coat. Number 11, one pair cowboy boots size 9D. Number 12, two pair cowboy boots size 7 and 1 half D. 13, four pair underwear, subject Clifton. 14, one kitchen knife, six and one half inches long. 15, one brown jacket, King's Road. 16, one white sweater, MGM. 17, one short sleeve shirt, Edwards. 18, one white sweater. 19, one white long sleeve turtleneck shirt. 20, one pair Levi's Stay Press slacks. 21, one pair green coveralls. 22, one pair brown slacks. Number 62, one brown bone-handled pocket knife. Number 66, one pair black and white pants. Number 73, one envelope of suspect fingernail scrapings, Clifton. Number 80, one pair blue trousers, Clifton. Number 81, one blue shirt. Number 82, tan jacket. These were tested for blood, semen, hairs, fibers, mud, and fingerprints. Every single test came back negative on every item. There was nothing that tied Oscar to the crime scenes or Donna. The actual murder weapon was never found. We've heard rumors repeated that paint from Oscar's truck was found on Donna's bike. That is false. They took 16 paint samples from different areas on Oscar's truck with no match. It turned out that the paint matched the TCSO evidence truck used to transport the bike from the scene. How could the jury convict Oscar when there was no blood on his clothing? Where was the jury's common sense? The person who killed Donna sat on top of her, front and back, knees in the mud. And we have to remember that the state's timeline did not allow for even one minute of cleanup time. Oscar would have had to have jumped in his truck, drive as fast as he could 11 miles home, walk across the carpeted house in front of his children and Carter in less than 15 minutes. How did this make sense to anyone? At this point, Bird and Powell should have realized they made a mistake. They arrested and filed charges against the wrong man. There was no physical evidence. Bird finally went out to interview Frank Thomas and Chamberlain interviewed Trueblood. They knew Oscar's alibi was sound. They also knew the timeline they were presenting at trial was impossible. Everything they claimed happened between 3.45, when Donna left Don Lee's, and 4.45, when they said Oscar arrived home, could not have happened in that short amount of time. We can't figure out why they cared more about convicting Oscar than finding the person who killed Donna. We would like to believe that they somehow really felt that Oscar did it, but the evidence disproves that interpretation of the facts. TCSO threatened Carter with prosecution if he did not change his statement of Oscar's arrival time from 4.15 to 4.45. They presented knowingly false hair and semen evidence at trial. They suppressed two critical alibi witnesses. Powell accused Oscar in open court of killing Donna in the painter's pants and making up the freezer loading story when Powell had actual knowledge that neither of these accusations were true. Ray Donahue also had an active role in some of the most reprehensible behavior. He did not give an opening statement or present Oscar's alibi or the timeline issues with the state's case. Donahue knew of Gerber and Trueblood and lied to Oscar about it, not only in 1976, but during five years of post-conviction correspondence with Oscar. The very day that Donahue was caught in this lie and was going to have to admit his involvement in the suppression in open court, he drove his car head-on into a canal. Tim Donahue was no better. 
He denied Oscar's new attorneys access to Oscar's own case file, but let the prosecutor's investigator go through it in secret. We will never know what was in that file that might have helped Oscar win his appeal, but Petty John's written statements from Gerber and Trueblood mysteriously disappeared. Presumably, they would have matched the Trueblood tape that Bird hid and never transcribed. We can't state strongly enough how damaging this was. Finding copies of the statements that Petty John took from Gerber and Trueblood could have overturned Oscar's conviction and given him a new trial. All of this raises the obvious question. If Oscar didn't kill Donna, who did? The best way to look at that question is to take Oscar and the invoice book out of the picture and start at the beginning. One of the problems associated with Oscar is that he didn't know Donna or where she lived, so it locked the police onto list as a forcible kidnap scene. Let's go back to Donna leaving Don Lee's house on Marinette and Anderson at 3.45 p.m. Don testified that he didn't see if Donna continued down Anderson or turned on to Marinette after she left his house. Either route could have been a logical way home for her. We know she was running very late and would have been looking for the quickest route, but nothing else beyond that. We're going to guess that she turned on to Marinette for one simple reason. The Neal Ranch was on Marinette, 3.5 miles straight east from Donnelly's house. There is no reason to believe that Donna ever made it off Marinette on her bike that afternoon. She was never seen riding the 4.3 miles home through town. It makes a lot more sense that she got in a vehicle very soon after she left Don's house. So, was she attacked and taken, or did she accept a ride with someone she knew? We've come to believe that she accepted a ride, and there were a few reasons for that. The first is that she was running late, and all of her friends mentioned she was worried about it. Her father's testimony made it pretty clear that he had already given her extra time and it sounded as if the rules were strictly enforced. This could have made her susceptible to agreeing to a ride she otherwise might have rejected. Additionally, she had already ridden her bike 10 miles that day. A car ride probably looked very good to her at that point. The second reason is that there was no evidence she was forced off her bike. She had no injuries to her legs or lower body, her pants were not ripped or scuffed, and her bike had no damage of any kind. It also seems unlikely that someone forced her off her bike at gunpoint. It would be extremely difficult to control Donna with a gun and put her bike in a vehicle at the same time. Also, why not just leave her bike by the side of the road or stash it behind a tree? It's all groves along there, so there were plenty of easy hiding places. In fact, why put her in the vehicle at all? She could have been dragged into a grove and assaulted anywhere along Marinette. So let's agree for now that Donna accepted a ride likely from someone she thought she could trust. Her bike was loaded into the vehicle and she got into the car expecting a 10 minute ride home. Donna's house was near the corner of List and Spruce. Her body was found right by the intersection of Marinette and Spruce. So the 3.5 mile ride down Marinette from Don Lee's to Spruce would have been a normal route home. What happened when they got to Spruce and didn't turn right? Were there force or threats used to keep her in the car for the short hop across the canal into the grove? Or did she think they were just stopping there for a grove-related reason? Donna and her grandparents, who lived next door, were orange growers, and her house was completely surrounded by groves. Many of her friends and neighbors also lived on ranches, and the person giving her a ride might have appeared to have a normal reason to make a quick stop at Neal Ranch. Perhaps he said he just needed to drop off or pick up a piece of equipment or talk to someone there. We don't know, but Donna could have conceivably gotten all the way onto Neil Ranch without knowing she was in danger. Of course, none of this could have been Oscar. He was a complete stranger to Donna, and the inside of his truck looked exactly like the type of ride teenage girls know to avoid. Most importantly, he had no idea where Donna lived or that she used the shortcut on the Grove Road that ran behind her house. There are a few more details to consider here. None of Donna's shoe prints or sock prints were found near her bike or on Neil Ranch. Her panties, shoes, and pants did not have any blood from her injuries or grove mud on them. Where was she when she removed her clothing? 
Why is there no evidence of her standing or walking? Donna's cause of death was listed as manual strangulation, which is clearly incorrect. She was still alive after the killer left, and she crawled a small distance out from under the tree. The coroner also did not address a few other issues, like evidence that the killer may have been left-handed. Donna had an abrasion and bruising on her right cheekbone, which is consistent with her being struck by a left-handed person facing her. She had a blow to the head and stab wound behind her left ear, injuries that would have been awkward for a right-handed person to inflict from behind. The other unusual injury was a blow to her left kidney area. It's likely that someone kicked her quite hard while she was on the ground. The person who killed Donna was very, very angry. It's impossible to know if this was generalized anger or specifically directed at Donna. She was tiny and defenseless, and we can't get our heads around the entire murder. It could be that the killer was angry that Donna had her period, and that ruined his plans for a sexual assault. If that were true, it suggests a younger, less experienced offender, someone easily put off. It also reinforces the idea that there was never any seminal fluid on her pubic hair, which was covered in menstrual blood. Again, the fluid seen on her backside was tree spray, not semen. So the killer found himself with Donna's clothing and her bike. Why didn't he leave them right there in the grove with Donna? It would have just looked like she was grabbed as she was riding home. The only reason it would make sense to move them would be to draw attention to a different location or a different person. Criminals often think they are more clever than the police and can commit the perfect crime to outwit them. It's a game or a challenge. Based on other crimes we believe may be related to this case, it's likely that was the motivation for the elaborate events that followed Donna's murder. It would have been easy for someone very familiar with the area to drive between Neal Ranch and List using only canal siding roads and grove roads. The only footprints seen near the bike reportedly belonged to the tennis shoes of Jim Diet and David Richmond. No sign of Donna or a kidnapper. If the bike was dumped there by the killer, then he knew a lot about Donna. He knew where she lived. He knew which direction to point the bike to make it look like she was coming from Don Lee's. And he knew that Donna used that Grove shortcut road to get home. Remember, Donna's parents didn't even know she used that route and drove right by it without checking four times before calling the police. This certainly fits with someone Donna knew and trusted enough to accept a ride home. So now he set the stage to make it look like Donna was kidnapped right by home, not all the way up on Marinette. This would serve two purposes. One, it would take them longer to find Donna. They would be starting the search 3.3 miles away from her. Two, it would focus attention on people seen near List that afternoon, not on vehicles that may have been parked or hanging around Don Lee's house. The notion of the perfect crime includes suspicion never falling on the real killer. Preferably, the police would arrest someone else for it, so they stop looking. Why Oscar? It could be someone who disliked him, or someone who had some type of personal grudge, or someone who knew of his prior conviction. It might have been totally random. What we do know is that the invoice book was in an unlocked vehicle and disappeared sometime between the afternoon of December 23rd and December 26th. Were the notepad, bottles, cans, and strange pillow all left at the bike scene to throw suspicion on different suspects, and the invoice book just stuck while the others were ignored? Or was that secluded road just a dumping ground, and someone had stolen the invoice book for some other reason, just discarded it there with the notepad stolen from someone else? The invoice book, notepad, and bottles, cans were all wiped of prints, so there seems to be some commonality between them. Were Donna's clothing items really left in a trail leading to Oscar's house? Or was it just a trail leading out of town, away from Donna's body and the killer? As we've said before, since the pants were found on the center line of a busy road on a damp night, they could not have been on the road long before they were found at 5.45 p.m. Did the killer drive out to Oscar's house, approach his truck from a siding road through the fields, take the invoice book, and then leave the clothing items in a trail leading back towards the bike? This certainly fits with the items being on the south and east side of the road. It was dark at 5, and we've been able to confirm that Oscar's truck was parked on the far side of the garage, away from the house, and towards the fields. The kids in the house would have been unable to see or hear anyone out of the truck. 
there would have been ample time for the killer to return to the bike scene, likely walking through the groves to use the darkness and cover in case the bike had already been found. There were no nearby houses or streetlights, so the area was pitch black at night, and it was foggy. There was plenty of time before David found the bike around 6.30 to return to the bike and place the invoice book notepad. Also, there was at least an hour between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. when the bike was again alone before TCSO secured the scene. The other question that has come to mind regarding the invoice book is whether or not the book was really there when David Richmond found the bike. David claimed to examine the invoice book and notepad, but neither had his fingerprints. None of the original interviews with the Richmonds mentioned it, nor did the initial police reports. It was not until Bird arrived at 8.45 that there was the first mention of the invoice book. We have no evidence that the invoice book was planted at the scene to justify an arrest and search warrant for Clifton. But, given the involvement of Bird, Ferris, and Barnes in Oscar's 1965 case, we're keeping the question open. Could Barnes or Ferris have arrived at the bike scene, contacted Bird, and told him to drive out to Clifton's to see if there was any sign of Donna? Did Bird then return with the invoice book because he truly believed Oscar had Donna, and they needed evidence to go search his place and question him? We have no proof anything like that happened, but we're pointing out inconsistencies and possibilities since the state's story can't possibly be the whole truth. Oscar had many appeals over the years. One of his first successfully overturned his death sentence, and he was resentenced to life. He came very close to winning a new trial in 1983 over the suppression of Gerber and Trueblood. The federal judge who issued that ruling made some interesting statements, noting, quote, The strange history of this case is that at each new step, new evidence is produced by the state. And he found Oscar's case, quote, troubling, especially given that the evidence for conviction was circumstantial and not overwhelming. He also expressed a, quote, personal feeling of uneasiness regarding the history of Oscar's case. In 2001, Oscar started to apply for DNA testing under a newly passed California law. On October 1, 2001, the DA informed his attorneys that all items of evidence in the case had been destroyed in 1977 except the plaster tire casts and four items found stored with the court clerk. This is TCSO continuation report. October 3rd, 2001, 0800 hours. Above date and time, I received a Tulare County Superior Court order requesting information regarding evidence retained for this case. A check of the property and evidence files shows no evidence being retained on this case. Also, no documentation on the disposition of the evidence is retained by property and evidence. Any records or evidence cards listing the items of evidence, chain of custody, and dispositions have been forwarded to the Records Division to be placed in case files. All items on the attached evidence cards have been destroyed per Detective Bob Bird. This is the first Crime Lab evidence card. April 8, 1977. Bird okayed to discard refrigerator one and two. One envelope suspect fingernail scrapings, Clifton. One receipt book, one small notebook, one piece of carbon paper. Three microscopic slides, one vial of suspect Clifton known blood. Five envelopes of suspect Clifton known head hairs. 16 envelopes of paint from suspect's vehicle. One envelope containing one unknown hair found under seat of suspect's vehicle. Five containers of known hair, suspect Clifton's spouse. Five containers of known hair of suspect Clifton's spouse. Five containers of known hair of suspect Clifton's daughters. Five containers of known hair of suspect Clifton's son. One vial of fluid. One sample of pubic hair. One soil sample. One soil sample. One soil sample. One Coors beer can. One empty Schlitz malt liquor bottle. One empty bottle of Michelob. 
two 12-ounce Pepsi cans, one empty bottle Bacardi rum, one sweepings from floor suspect vehicle, one side view mirror with leaf, one long sleeve shirt, one orange par tea pack bottle, one purple scarf with leaves and blood on it, one multicolored ski cap, one piece white cloth possible blood on it, one piece white cloth with possible blood and hair on it, one sample head hair, suspect Clifton, one sample pubic hair, suspect Clifton, one sample of leaves, one purple thread, one fingernail scraping from victim, one hair from right thigh a victim, one known head hair sample from victim, one known blood sample, Richmond, one gastric contents, Richmond, one container of unknown hair, four dirt samples from body scene, one bag of known orange tree leaves, one cotton swab of ignition stain, one bag of unknown dirt from underneath suspect vehicle, six inked tire impressions. This is TCSO report Johnson, dated April 9th, 1977. 4877. Reporting officer discarded per Sergeant Bird the following items of evidence. Number one, reported known blood of suspect Oscar Clifton. Number two, reported known blood of victim. Number three, reported stomach contents of victim. Number four, reported known pubic hair of victim and washing solution. Discard box prior to destruction by a coroner's office. No further action. This is TCSO property receipt dated March 7th, 1977, received from Sergeant Lovett. These are items returned to Oscar's family. One pair seven and a half D cowboy boots. One pair seven and a half D cowboy boots. One pillow. One pair brown slacks. One pair green coveralls. One King's Road jacket. One right seatbelt. Four pair of underwear. One pair black and white trousers. One turtleneck shirt. One white sweater. One beige short sleeve shirt. One kitchen knife. One pair socks. One belt. One pair blue pants. One brown jacket. These items were returned to Rick Carter from Evidence December 30th, 1975. Releasing officer was Yandel. They were all returned to owner without being tested. One pair blue jeans. One pair cowboy boots. One white t-shirt. One cowboy hat. One pair white socks. One pair white underwear. One jean jacket. This is a letter dated June 23rd, 2003 to Nicole Heron Northern California Innocence Project. Regarding People versus Oscar Archie Clifton, our laboratory is in receipt of your request dated June 13, 2003 to locate and identify photocopied slides contained in the discovery materials on pages 00033 through 00037, which was sent to NCIP in May of 2002. Mr. Morton located the slides these slides remain in our custody. Our laboratory does not have slides of victim's hair containing semen. Thank you. Terry L. Giho, Forensic Technician, FSD. So, in 2002, Donna's pants, sanitary belt and napkin, panties, and Oscar's knife were all tested for DNA. No male DNA was detected on Donna's items, and Donna's DNA was not found on the knife. After this testing was complete, Morton, who did all the original forensics testings for the state, 
informed Oscar's defense that he had 46 previously undisclosed slides from the case in storage. He said they were all reference samples and had no evidentiary value. This was not true. Some of them were evidence slides. Even after the evidentiary nature of the slides was confirmed, it took several more appeals before a testing order was finally obtained in 2011. Tested at that time were several items. Strands of yarn from the scarf Donna had tied around her waist, which contained only her DNA. Two dark and one light blonde hair found inside the ski cap on Neil Ranch, which, although containing root ends, did not produce DNA profiles. Dark hairs from the bloody rags found at the abandoned house near Shoe 2, which were believed to be unrelated to the case. These produced a full profile, which was uploaded to CODIS and did not match any known offenders or other offenses. A pubic hair of Donna's, which was washed, and the wash fluid tested for DNA. They used up all of the sample running the test. This was unfortunate, because somehow the lab contaminated the control sample in the test, so male DNA was introduced somewhere in the lab. The wash produced numbers at three YSTR loci, but that was thought to have been the product of random contamination in the handling of her body or in the preparation of the slide rather than the presence of seminal fluid. The lab also confirmed that the wash did not contain any spermatozoa. Oscar had dozens of parole hearings starting in 1983 and continuing right up until his death in 2013. He was denied parole for two simple reasons. The first was that he always maintained his innocence, and the second was despicable false information fed to the parole board by TCSO. In 1982, Bob Bird sent a letter on TCSO letterhead opposing Oscar's parole. It said in part, September 22, 1982. On December 26, 1976, Donna Jo Richmond was riding her bicycle home from a friend's house. As she was taking a shortcut through her parents' orange grove, Oscar Clifton ran her down with his pickup truck. He then kidnapped her and drove her to another orange grove approximately four miles away, where he raped, sodomized, and stabbed the victim 19 times, strangled her until she was dead. He then left the victim half-nude underneath an orange tree. Clifton was questioned numerous times as to the location of the victim. Clifton at no time ever showed any sign of remorse. The search for the victim took two days and over a hundred officers and citizens. Obviously, Donna was not run down. She had no injuries to show that and her bike was undamaged. This theory was never even argued at trial. In fact, the lack of footprints suggested that neither Donna nor her kidnapper ever walked near her bike. It's interesting that these letters assert that Clifton was questioned numerous times. Oscar had invoked his Miranda rights, and TCSO denied questioning him at trial. A couple of other small things. Donna was found by a grove worker less than 18 hours after she was reported missing, not two days. And she was stabbed 17 times, not 19. Bird's letter was just lies on top of lies. The rape and sodomy never happened, but the parole board took Bird's word for it and cited those crimes as their grounds for denying Oscar's parole. Oscar appealed this denial and an order was issued that all reference and letters regarding rape and sodomy be removed from his file, yet the letter remained. It hardly mattered because when Oscar came up for parole in 1987, TCSO wrote a new letter which read, November 5th, 1987. On December 26, 1976, a child, Donna Jo Richmond, was riding her bicycle through her parents' orange grove using a shortcut from a friend's house. As Donna rode through the grove, Oscar Clifton ran her down with his pickup truck. After knocking her off the bicycle, he kidnapped her and drove her to another orange grove approximately four miles away. Once at this location, he raped, sodomized, stabbed the girl 19 times, and strangled her until she was dead. Oscar Clifton then left the half-nude body lying under an orange tree. During the investigation, Clifton was questioned several times as to the location of the girl's body. At no time did Clifton display any remorse during questioning. The subsequent search for the girl's body took two days and over 100 officers and citizens. Oscar's parole was again turned down. And again, the board cited the rape and sodomy as the reason for denial. Oscar then filed a civil suit, and the California Attorney General ordered all references to rape and sodomy removed from Oscar's file. 
Again, the letters remained, as did TCSO's letter writing. November 8, 1989. On December 26, 1975, Donna Jo Richmond, 13 years old, was innocently riding a bicycle in the area of her residence. Oscar Clifton forcibly abducted Donna Jo and drove to a nearby orange grove where he raped, sodomized, stabbed the victim 19 times, and strangled her until she was dead. He then left her partially nude body under an orange tree. The original investigation revealed that Clifton was questioned several times and showed no sign of remorse and would not disclose the location of the victim. A search team of over 100 officers and citizens found the victim two days later in the orange grove. November 28, 1994. Prior to this letter, I scanned through the original case file of this investigation. Beside the facts of the case, I saw several photographs of Donna Jo Richmond's body where she had been concealed by Oscar Clifton. What I saw was repulsive, the end of life for a 13-year-old girl. That small child was raped, sodomized, stabbed numerous times, and even strangled. All of this done by the hands of Oscar Clifton, a vicious predator who deserves no second chance at life. All of these letters remained in the file that was given to board members at each parole hearing. Then, on October 30th, 2006, Tulare County was represented by Deputy DA Ruth McKee, who said, What Donna Jo does have is something no 14-year-old girl should have, and that's a headstone. Donna Jo was bludgeoned over the head with a tire iron or a crowbar. She was raped. There's evidence that she may have even been sodomized. She was strangled, and she was stabbed 17 times and left to claw her way out of the dirt. Oscar was again denied parole, with the parole board stating, The prisoner is not suitable for parole. The reason is the commitment offense. The offense was carried out in an especially cruel and callous manner. The victim was abused during or after the offense. The offense was carried out in a manner which demonstrates an exceptionally callous disregard for human suffering. The conclusions are drawn from the statement of facts wherein the inmate kidnapped a 14-year-old girl, took her to a remote orange grove, raped the child, bludgeoned her with an object, bludgeoned her head with an object, and stabbed her 14 times, causing her death. In addition to the lies about the rape and sodomy, Tulare County had added a crowbar or tire iron. There was never once, at any point during the autopsy, investigation, or trial, any suggestion that either of these weapons was used on Donna. The blow to her head was closed and did not break the skin or leave a mark on the scalp. No crowbar or tire iron were ever found or tested. The rape, sodomy, tire iron, and crowbar are made up out of whole cloth and presented as factual evidence by the DA's office at an official hearing. Oscar never had a chance.